You're listening to TIP. Oh man, okay. This is actually a pretty good story. So we all before we purchased, like the closing got extended by like an extra seven days on this property. And so not only did we get the quotes before, we like agreed and told him to get started before we even started closing. And like, we didn't totally even check in on that with like the previous owners. We were just like, nah, man, like go, go ahead and get started, which in hindsight, we should have communicated way better. In this week's episode, I bring back Connor Gross to talk all about investing in self-storage facilities as a young and new real estate investor. Connor Gross is a successful entrepreneur in the real estate and e-commerce industries and co-host of the Next Generation podcast. He has acquired over 50,000 square feet of self-storage facilities and has over 275 units under management without any outside capital. I heard from y'all that you enjoyed Connor's last appearance on the show, and he said you guys reached out to him the most out of any podcast he's been on. So I'm bringing him back today to chat again. And while we're on the topic of reaching out to guests on the show, I want to give you all a big shout out. When you guys reach out to the guests that we have on the show, that shows them they're getting a lot of people from being on the podcast. And that allows us to bring those guests back on and to continue to bring on other great guests in the future. So I wanted to give you all kudos for doing such a great job of that and to ask you guys to keep doing it. If you like the guests, reach out to them and let them know that you heard them here on the Real Estate 101 podcast. I also mentioned a few episodes back that we'd have a bit more informal and conversational episodes. This is one of them. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I bring back Connor Gross. Connor, welcome back to the show. Robert, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be back. It hasn't been all that long since we last chatted, but you've been busy and actually done quite a bit since then. So I wanted to bring you back on the show to talk about all those different things. When you were last on the show, you had just bought your first self-storage facility Since then, you've increased the monthly revenue 127% with 13% of your units still being unrentable. Give us an update on that property and walk us through what you did to get it to where it is today. Yeah. And so as of right now, that one is the one that we bought just outside of Dallas. Uh, I got the dashboards up. So I'm actually looking at like the exact numbers of where we're at today. Basically, when we first bought that property, we had, I want to say like 18 different units that were just completely unrentable. And so it was like either like owner occupied units or we had units that were damaged or units that had like essentially like delinquent tenants. And what we were able to basically do is like just totally turn all of those units around. So we had the units that were broken, they were fixed. The owner-occupied units, they ended up moving out. And the delinquent tenants, we ended up actually paying them to get out of the facility. So we took that property back in, let me pull up the numbers here. September was doing $4,000 a month. And now we're doing about $9,500 a month with it. And I do think that there's actually even still like a decent ways to go because we still have some units that just like still need to go and get fixed up and replace the doors and whatnot. And we're actually still in the process as well of we have a little bit more room to squeeze in terms of like driving revenue with it. So still a couple of to pull in my mind, like the win is going to be getting into like a little north of $10,000 a month on that property. 
when it comes to like residential properties, it's pretty easy to find somebody to come fix something. You just hire a handyman, a plumber, electrician, whoever it is for that specific property. But who do you call when you have a self-storage unit that needs to be fixed? So at the new properties that we're buying, I'm calling like the most recent two properties that we bought. I've been calling some of their owners and like they'll at least have like some relevant people that can go and help. The first property, we had no idea and we also never did it before. So I was like, it was just literally calling so many people. Basically, most of the stuff that has to get fixed in a storage unit typically comes down to like roll up overhead doors. And it's sometimes tough to go and get somebody out there when it's like, hey, I need four doors fixed, right? Because from their standpoint, like that's like a decent amount of driving and work for not a crazy paycheck. So the way that we actually got these first, like I want to say like 12 units fixed back at the Dallas property was we called a bunch of overhead door spots. They're all like, nope, not going to do it. And then I ended up going on YouTube and be like, all right, you know what? Like we're going to just install these doors by ourselves. And I went on and I found a basically a place that will go and sell us the doors. And there's like an eight by 10 foot door. And I was like, all right, we're going to pick these up and we're going to install it by ourselves. And so we go over, we drive like an hour and a half away into like the middle of Texas. We rent a U-Haul for the day, pick up one door to make sure that we can actually do it. And it'll work before we pick up the other like 11. And I come back to the property and I'll be honest, I'll just straight say straight up. Like I am not the most handy individual, like tools and all of that kind of stuff, like not my forte. And so we spent like probably like nine hours trying to put up this door. And it got to the point where it was like late at night, like mosquitoes were out. I remember, I remember being just so tired because we had to like redo the railing like three times. And we basically get this door up. And then finally we realized we saw the frame like a quarter inch too close in. And now the door won't pull down smoothly. And at that point I was like incredibly frustrated. And so I just remember like going back to the hotel that we rented that night. I was like, we can't do this 11 more times. It's going to be terrible. So we wake up the next morning and I'm rewatching that video of like how to install it. Cause I was like, well, we at least have to fix this door. And I see a logo on one of the guy's shirts who's installing the door. And I search up that company. I call them. I was like, do you guys do doors? Like, how does this all work? And they're like, yeah, we got doors. And I was like, all right, like I'm, I might be interested in buying like, you know, close to a dozen, but like, how does the installation work? He's like, let me transfer you all over to the sales team. We talked to the sales guy and he's like, Hey, listen, like I shouldn't be telling you this, but I've got my guy, Leo is his name. He's like, I've got my guy, Leo. He kind of works like off the books for me in terms of like being able to go and like install the doors. Like here's his number. So I call Leo and he's like, he's like, Oh yeah. And like order them through me too. Like I'll even get you a discount on the doors. Leo shows up three days later, installs 11 overhead doors in a matter of like probably two hours. And it was a decently reasonable price. I was like, this was amazing. So I think with stuff like this, when you don't know how to do it, just keep on trying to like search and call different people because eventually someone a lot older and more experienced than you will like maybe point you in the right direction. Why didn't the overhead door companies that you called want to do it? It just wasn't worth their time or... I think it wasn't worth their time or they charge a crazy amount to install each door. Like they would charge a thousand dollars per door installation. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to pay 12 grand just for installation. Plus I think we ended up spending like six grand on the doors or something like that. So I was like, it's not worth the time. And then Leo comes and does it for, for what? In two hours, 12 grand in two Much. hours. Uh, dude, much less than that. Yeah. We, right. We gotta, right. We gotta, but if you had paid the 12 grand, it would have been like, oh my God, I just paid 12 grand for two hours. Worth exactly. Work. Meanwhile, now we're like, we got like the doors for like half off because of his connection. And then like his installation costs weren't crazy. And now I'm like, cool. This whole thing cost me like, I want to say doors and installation together cost like five grand. And so I was like, this is a huge win for us. The perfect part is like, now we have all of these new units that are filled up now through the spring season that we're making money off of, which is sweet. So did you fly into Dallas just to do that? I know you're always all over the place, staying in different places. Did you happen to be in the Dallas area at the time or did you have to fly in for that? 
So when we first bought that property for like the first couple of months, we were living down in Austin. And so it was a lot of three hour drives back and forth. And so frequently we would like every other week, we would drive up to Dallas for like a three or four day stint and then just drive back down to Austin. And so it was like probably the first three or four months that we were just on site a lot. Now we've actually gotten a lot better with these two properties that we just bought at like being able to manage a lot of the stuff remotely. It still stresses us out a little bit, but like it's, we're getting more comfortable with it. Did I read correctly? Did you buy that property in all cash? Yeah. 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 Are you planning on putting debt on that to get your capital back out in the near future? Oh yeah. And actually, I mean, I'll share this story because it's like definitely the not fun side of this part, but like our expectation was going in. So we bought the first and second property all cash. Third one, we finally used some kind of financing and like, thank God we did because we just started to run out of money, but we basically bought it all cash. And now we're actually in contact about refinancing a lot of this stuff with these banks. And what I'm realizing is banks are like have just really strict criteria on refinancing. I'm like, you guys would finance this if I was buying it for the first time, but you're not willing to go and like give me my money back if I'm trying to refinance. So just yesterday, actually, we got a notice from like one of the banks that we thought we we're going to be able to refinance both with. They said that they wouldn't refinance this one because A, we don't have enough experience in the field. And I was like, All right, I don't know if that's a super relevant reason. Like we just showed we more than doubled the revenue. And we're starting to do this at a couple properties. So I was like, okay, dumb reason. And the second one was because we haven't owned the property long enough. And I'm like, so if I own this for another six months, will you do it? It's very weird and vague criteria. My understanding is if after talking to the talk to the mortgage broker too, he basically said, like, if I hold on to this for another like eight months, I should be able to refinance and pull all of my money out out of both of those first two properties. But for now, I kind of just have to like sit tight. So my response is basically like, okay, I'm going to approach 20 more banks and see if anyone else will do this. But yeah, the plan is to pull the money back out. I was just going to say, keep calling banks because there's just like you found with Leo is as long as you go to these smaller banks, if you just call Bank of America, Chase, they're all going to be the same. But if you talk to these smaller banks, you're going to find that they're going to have all these different reasons or programs and one might be willing to do it. I mean, you just mentioned two that had two different reasons. So you might find one someday that has no reason, right? Right. That's my exact thought. So, and, and also, man, like the nice part is like theoretically, right? You can, I had a tweet about this the other day where like net worth is done because anyone can say their property is worth something, even when it's not worth that based on how you value it and the cap rates and, and whatever. But like, okay, this Dallas property with the fact that we're going to maybe potentially be doing like 10 grand a month on it as early as like next month or the month after, let's then assume. $120,000 a year. Let's assume, well, let's say 70% margins on that. So like rough math on that, I think comes out to $84,000. And then just like conservatively call that a 10 cap, that's $840,000. Dude, just give me a 50% LTV. Give me a 50% LTV and I'll go home because that's all of my money back. So I think banks kind of get caught up with that purchase price number where it's like, wait, they bought it for 400,000 cash and they want all of their money back. It's like, that's not how you should be thinking about it. I was just going to ask you, has all of the cash that you've now generated because of the increased rental income and just all the other stuff you've done to the property, has that doubled the property in value? You've doubled the revenue. So it went from 4,700 to about 10 grand. So have you seen it go about double in value? When you're saying, have I seen it? Like, have I gotten it appraised? Are you confident that you'll be able to get about, you think that's about what it's worth now? I would argue that it's worth a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I think that's typically with commercial real estate, you'll value it based off cap rates and a multiple of EBITDA, right? And net income. So in my opinion, if we grew the revenue by like, I don't know what the math comes out to on, on 10, 4,000 to 10,000, I think it's like, would it be 150% growth or something like that? 
if we grew by that, I would assume the value goes up linearly as well. So yeah, I would argue that it's worth a hell of a lot more now. And that's kind of why I like, I've been getting really obsessed with a lot of these value add equity creation deals because you see with cap rates and whatnot, you're able to go and increase the value of a property so much where if it's at trading at a 10 cap and you increase it by $1 on the NOI, now that property is worth $10 more. You know what I mean? It's a pretty powerful multiplier with real estate. Is that property in Dallas proper or is it in a smaller city outside? Oh, no. Sorry. I keep on calling uh, Dallas because I don't think anyone would recognize the suburb. It's just outside of Dallas. It's like a 15 minute drive from downtown. How big is the city? Uh, like 40, 50,000 people, I want to say. How much due diligence did you do on that city before you bought that property? None. But, like, and I know that's the, totally the wrong answer. Did we not talk in the last podcast about like what it went from when we found the deal to when we closed it? I believe you had it like semi under contract. You had to fly down there and the guy like kind of pulled the rug out from under you, something along those lines, right? Yeah. Basically the long and short of it, it's like we found it. And then like from the day we found it to the day that like money was sent and we closed was seven days. So it was like unreasonably quick. So in terms of the actual city itself that we're in, we didn't do that much diligence but we were very confident with the city of Dallas and just kind of assumed that like being in the general vicinity of that city, like we're very confident in like Fort Worth, Dallas, Austin, really the whole Texas market as a whole for being able to kind of grow. And so, you know, the more I look into the city, like, do I love it? Is it my favorite city in the world that we're in? No, not really. But like, do I still feel confident in our decision based on being close to Dallas and being able to like have some of the tailwinds that come from Dallas growth? Yeah, I still feel really good about it. I'm glad you mentioned your experience with financing because you had mentioned you bought the first two properties with cash and then you mentioned you were going to finance the third. And I was like, oh, I wonder what his experience has been because I know financing is just a nightmare compared to to just buying something with cash. So how much did you buy the first one for? It was about 400,000, right? Yeah. After all the fees and prepaid rents and stuff, I think the total came to 393. And so I think people listening are going to know that you're relatively young. They're going to want to know, how did you come up with almost $400,000 to buy this in cash? Yeah. I had an e-commerce business in college that I sold and then got really lucky with like the tailwinds of COVID that a lot of when we sold the business was like a month or two before COVID. I was sitting on a pile of cash based on that sale. And basically the entire market, everything from stocks to crypto, whatever, it all crashed at once. And I was like, Hey, I'm not trying to time the market, but like, this seems like a decent time to start buying stuff. So I started buying things and everything started going up. And now I'm at the point where like most of my like net worth or whatever you want to call it, honestly comes is now mostly in these buildings. And I'm starting to like liquidate more stuff that like is out of my control of like, I'm not as big into crypto as I was six months ago. I'm not as big into like stocks and equities and all that. So most of all the cash and stuff like that, that I've been using to buy these deals and buy these businesses with has either come as a result of current businesses that I'm running or has come as a result of the business that I sold back in college. Why aren't you into equities and crypto as much as you used to be? For me, dude, it's just not as fun. And it's a couple things, right? I guess the big thing is honestly that I want to have more control over things, right? Like, don't get me wrong, like still think crypto's probably got like a, a big future ahead of it. But like I can sit here for the last two years and just open the Coinbase app and look, let me like there's Bitcoin, but like I'm not influencing that. I'm not like doing anything there. And so for me, I would rather say, hey, can I buy this building? And like, because of like my operations and business and all of that kind of stuff, 
can I go and make this cash flowing and like make it bigger, more profitable, better run, and then like maybe sell it for double, triple my money in like a year or two. That is way more fun for me. And I think the other thing is like I still have like I think you're using an M1 finance account. And I'll still like put a little bit of money into that on like a monthly basis, just because like I feel like from my parents' standpoint, they're like, please just start doing some investing from like a retirement standpoint. Think about it. Cause I'm super against the like 401ks and all that. I'd rather take most of my money now and use it to buy more businesses because it's way more fun for me. But I'll still do a little bit of that. But for the most part, like every dollar I make that's not being spent on my personal life or uh, going into like an SP index fund is going into like trying to buy more businesses or trying to buy more real estate. So outside of just the asset classes of equities, crypto, and real estate, I know you do e-commerce businesses as well. How do you think about real estate versus e-commerce businesses? Do you like one better than the other? Like, Can you see yourself getting away from e-commerce and more into just real estate because you like it that much? No, I think I need both, honestly. And this is just my personality. So I think anyone listening to this and trying to decide their own path, like think about what you really like. From my standpoint, I think I really enjoy the real estate side of things because I've come to the conclusion that like you're competing against like and big caveat here, there are some really smart players in real estate, but on the large of it, you're competing against sometimes not the most sophisticated operators, especially in the storage world. And so what I really like about that is like these things are predictable. There's a lot of institutional players in the space that makes it easy to go and get debt on things like this. You know, you're competing against the Ma's and Pa's of the world who are running these like small self-storage facilities. And what I like is like if you just use a little bit of tech and a little bit of automation, you're light years ahead. So that's what I really like about the real estate side. It's like it's predictable. It's kind of boring, but like it works. And like you can get like you can take down some pretty big deals and like make some serious money with it without having to like totally invent some crazy product or do some crazy marketing campaign. So that's what I like about that. With the e-commerce stuff, I really like it because like I just know that I personally have like a creative muscle I like to flex a lot. And in the real estate world, I feel like that can often get lost. Don't come around. Like you can always do some creative marketing stuff to find off-market deals. You can always go and do creative financing to like structure things that both benefit like you and the seller of the property. But for the most part, it's pretty like cut and dry. Whereas like e-commerce, like I can like create like some sexy brand campaign for like an upcoming holiday or like I can do these cool marketing funnels. And what I also like about e-commerce is that it's incredibly direct. Like with real estate, you're in a deals business. And so you maybe have like, I guess it totally depends on your scale, right? But like at a smaller scale, you'll have a couple at bats a year of like, I bought three properties this year, four properties this year. With an e-commerce standpoint, I'd be like, I actually think I know a new way to like position this product. What if I send out an email blast with this tagline or launch this ad campaign and use this as the offer? And you'll know in like two days whether or not that worked. And that for me is really fun. So I think I sometimes overdo it on like load up a little bit too much work on my plate, but I think I'd rather have a little bit too much work than just do one thing and you know get stuck doing that same thing the whole time. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Buy low, sell high. 
It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. What are you doing in the e-commerce space right now? I remember last time we talked, you were doing cars and boats, I believe, something in that realm. Are you still doing that? And if not, what are you working on? Yeah, same realm. And I sold one of the last ones like a month or two ago, basically just like a little like niche site that we had on the side. But no, right now it's still primarily like the car boat space, just doing like different things there that can basically scale up. What I like about it is that we're selling a lot of different products to both of those markets. And what I also like is that they often overlap a lot. So you can cross sell between a couple different brands. Can you give us examples of the type of products that you're selling? Oh, totally. Yeah. So like like the company's called Respo Collection, R-E-S-P-O-K-E Collection. And we'll do like custom automotive artwork and things like that. And so it'll be like total custom designs where like, if you're really into like your car or your boat, we can do like a custom portrait or something like that of it. That makes like a pretty good like Father's Day gift, things like that. How do you get those made? Right now, we pretty much work with a couple 3PLs throughout the US and then also some like US-based designers. So how it works is like, you'll go, you'll submit a photo of your car. We'll go and make like a graphic rendering of it. And then like, it makes a great gift for like your garage and things like that. And they'll print it on like canvas or frame prints or whatever. And so you're not doing any of the fulfillment. You're really kind of just the front end marketing engine of it. 100%. Yeah. Trust me, my friends riff from me all the time where they're like, Connor's just out here drawing cars. No, it's a lot more of uh, we do like the ads and email blasts and things like that. And then we work with different partners to kind of go and fulfill the actual products. What are you finding that works for marketing? If you're not building a personal brand, which I'd follow you on Twitter. So you're not really building a personal brand in the sense of like, hey, I'm a car expert. Follow me for all this car stuff. And then driving those people to this e-commerce site. It's more organic just through the branding of the e-commerce site. So I'm curious, what are you finding that works for that? For that, it's so the best things honestly have been partnerships. And one small note before getting to that too, I do think that there's a lot of people who build a personal brand with the intent to sell something. And from my standpoint, almost nobody who pays me money today comes as a result of me posting stuff on Twitter, posting stuff on my own podcast, whatever. Like those are all like they are buying from the company and they don't even know I exist kind of thing. 
And I actually genuinely like it a lot more that way. I have friends who will do the opposite and like they make all of their money based off like their name, their image, their likeness, things like that. And I'm not saying there's one way that's right or wrong. I just personally prefer it my way because now it's like, I know that when things are working, they're working as a result of the brand, not because like Connor said something. And I kind of like the separation of that. In terms of like what I personally find working a lot today with e-commerce marketing, I think what a lot of people talk about right now is like, Facebook's getting really hard. All of these like ad paid media ad platforms are getting really hard. It's much harder than it is in 2015. That's just a fact. But the reality is too, like Facebook, Google, even now TikTok, a lot of people are seeing it, have the best ad engines that we've seen in our lifetimes. Or I'll speak personally, in my lifetime, I'm turning 25 next week. And so from my standpoint, it's still consistently spending a lot on paid media. But the bigger thing there as well too, is like, if you want to get more creative, people are trying to buy more from like a community focused brand these days. And so the brands that I see that are crushing it, that go beyond just like the, we spend money on Facebook and Google and we get a serious amount of revenue. They're the companies that are able to go and say, great, let's also go and start a YouTube channel and make a ton of content in that space. Or let's go and keep all of these different influencers on retainer, pay them $500 a month, and they'll make a ton of content for us. And as a result, then like they'll post it on their TikTok, it'll go viral organically. Like I'm chatting with a lot of like e-commerce operators who basically just like have these influencers on retainer and like they know how culture works. And so like they're getting content made consistently. And that's the reason why you have like these million dollar brands from like, you know, is it Chloe or one of the Kardashians has like their own makeup brand, right? Because like people follow their content. And like the makeup's probably not better than any other makeup that you're finding on the shelf in CVS, but like you know their content and you trust that brand and that you're willing to go and buy from it because they make a ton of content. What you just described about the content piece is I think exactly why people do the personal brands because then it's easy to take that and then sell whatever they want to sell. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yep. I completely agree. It's the trust element. But I tend to agree with you in the sense that I'd rather sell something under a business brand than under my own personal brand, mostly just because I think if I were to ever start a business like that, I'd want to sell it at some point. And it's much harder to sell it when it's tied to you personally than it is if it's just a brand. That's a great reason. I also think the reason I personally enjoy it more is I'm not saying that this is the case for a lot of people, but I always feel like when there's somebody who's selling something and it comes as a result of their personal brands, sometimes I feel like it can be a little disingenuous where it's like, are they talking to me because like, would they just want to have a genuine conversation or is like, is there an angle at the end of this? I just find that when you totally separate the two, you know that every conversation that you're having there on after is like very genuine and organic. There's no edge. Yeah, I completely agree. And a lot of people that build personal brands often sell only the certain types of products like coaching, online courses, ebooks, things like that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I have a couple of those myself. Like I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But at the same time, I think if you want to build like a real e-commerce business, it's tough to do with just a personal brand, at least the way most people do it right now. Totally agree. Also, like on like all the coaching and course stuff, this is three years ago. If you asked me to buy like a three hundred dollars course from somebody who's like, you know, a great real estate investor, I'd be like, ah, it seems like a scam. Meanwhile, I'm paying like a quarter of a million dollars to go to college that like teaches me nothing. So like definitely there's two sides to that coin. Now I think if you ask me, I've like taken more courses and like bought digital products from people in the space that I really do trust. And I'm like, okay, I spent three hundred dollars, but I also just saved three months of time because I immediately know how this works now. So I'm actually like I'm way more into it than I was before, but I just don't know if it's for me personally uh, in terms of like starting and launching one. What are some of those resources you've bought that you found valuable? 
The one that I'm specifically thinking of is Steph Smith. She has two books called Doing Content Right and Doing Time Right, I think, on like productivity and creating content. And then the other one that I bought was from Daniel Vasallo, kind of talking about like the nuances of like how to go and like grow and, and scale up your Twitter following. Both of those I found to be really, really valuable. I'm surprised you mentioned those two. I'm actually familiar with the Steph Smith one. I'm not with the second one, but regardless, I'm surprised that you mentioned those because they're all about growing content and building your audience. And we just talked about how that's not something you're trying to really do for a business perspective. So I'm curious why you pick those and, and why you want to grow your audience. For what it's worth, I think they apply beyond the personal side of things too. Like I've taken a lot of that kind of stuff and I've applied it to different businesses and whatnot, where like now I know a little bit better on like how to actually go and rank for things in SEO to go and optimize some of the e-commerce brands we have. And also like specifically on the personal brand side, I guess the easiest way to describe it is building a personal brand on any of these social platforms is the biggest indirect ROI you'll ever see, period. Like Point blank. What I mean by that is, let's take it back to the e-commerce stuff for an example. I spend $1 on Facebook. Facebook gives me $2.40 back, right? So that is the, a super attributable ROI. It's why marketers are getting lazy these days because they can see it being like very cut and dry. And like they think, this is good marketing. Spend $1, get $2.40 back. What they don't see are the long tail impacts of how to go and grow a brand. I was, uh, I was doing actually another podcast like a month ago. And I told the guy, I said like, listen, if I wanted to for one of my brands, I could go and make $100,000 in the next 10 days. The way I would do it is I would send two emails a day for the next 10 days. And on the surface, on paper, you're like, great, this is an amazing ROI. Let's keep on doing this. What you're not realizing is you're pissing off thousands of people by just consistently going and spamming their inbox every single day. But like, I could do it. It would work. It would suck for the long term, but it would work. When I say that social media has an indirect ROI, I mean that when I start looking at some of these deals that I've done, or some of the partnerships that I've made and some of the conversations I've had, a lot of them have actually been influenced by advice that was given to me from some of the people that I'm meeting on social and from some of the tactics that they'll go and share with me. And you don't realize it at the time. You're like, it's not like great making this one tweet and now I earned $17. No, it's like made this one tweet, got me into this Facebook group, met two people from that Facebook group. One of the guys introduced me to this other buddy and now he's investing in my next deal. That's what I mean by it's super indirect and like not really attributable, but it hands down has a crazy long tail effect. You and me met on social media. Yeah. And I will say as well, like anyone listening to this right now, I've been on a bunch of podcasts. I host a bunch of podcasts. Like this is also one of that podcast. I, I think I messaged you afterwards. I was like, more people have reached out to me as a result of this podcast than any other podcast I've been on, which has been pretty cool. Yeah. Kudos to everybody that's listening. Connor did text me or tweeted at me after and did say that. So kudos to everybody that's listening. When you were going to get started into real estate, what resources did you use to learn? Why did you decide on self-storage? Did you What resource did you use at pointing you to that direction? Was it Nick Huber on Twitter? What got you there? And then when you decided on self-storage, how did you even learn about it before you did it? Yeah. So a lot of the stuff was Nick Huber on Twitter. So the way we started was we basically sat down and this my partner, Gio and I, and we're like, we want to do real estate. Cool. What do we want to do in real estate? Like what asset class, what location, whatever. And we basically started thinking where should we go and invest? I think we started geographically first more than anything. And like neither of us were super tied to a state, but we, like, we started doing a bunch of criteria around like, okay, we don't want to be in a place that's like crazy declining growth. We, we actually, this is a weird metric, but, um, and I hope it doesn't offend anyone, but like we totally wrote off any democratic states just from day one. We were like, we're not going to go and invest there. We're going to go in all Republican states. Cause like the reason is cause it's landlord friendly in Republican states, not really yeah. in the political piece. It's just the landlord tenant friendly laws. 
Right. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right. So we basically just cut out like, all right, all blue states are off the table. Any place that is, you know, red, but like not growing is off the table. And so it basically gave us 17 states. And like, if you actually look at it, they're like some of the most popular states. So it's like, this isn't rocket science here. It's like Florida, Texas, Nevada, South Carolina, all those states that are blowing up anyway. That was where we were kind of looking. And so we narrowed it down to that. And we're like, all right, cool. Here's like out of all of these, do we have just a personal preference? And it really kind of mostly came down to Texas and Florida. I've done a deal in Florida yet, but like not opposed to it. So once we had that, we were like, okay, now what asset class do we want to go into? And we dabbled in everything from the mobile home parks to contractor based to single family, like everything, short-term rentals. And the two that we decided that would probably be the easiest part about is self-storage and like apartment buildings, not even necessarily like duplexes, like apartment buildings more so. And then the more research we did into it, like I bought what was the book? I want to say it's called Multifamily Millionaire. I think that's a book. I might be wrong. So I bought that and read it. I found that really interesting. I read a bunch of like the Burr books from Bigger Pockets, And then I also read the best self-storage book out there. I want to say it's called like Growing Wealth Through Self-Storage or like it's the most generic name possible for like one of these real estate books. So I bought that. And I think what it came down to is like, we got somewhat lucky in terms of like finding the deal, but like why we pick self-storage over apartment buildings is it came down to, do we want to be responsible for where somebody is living 365 days out of the year? Or do we want to be responsible for securing somebody's old couch that they don't have in their place right now? And we just determined like, we'd rather be responsible for a couch, not human lives. Like we don't want to like get those calls that like your pipes are broken and like you want some new paint job done in your house. Like when we go into these properties, we are adding lights, cameras, maybe a new fence, new coat of paint, something, nothing crazy. And people are thrilled about it. Whereas like you can never do enough to make somebody happy enough with their apartment. They're always going to want more. So basically filtered down by geography, went to self-storage and we're like, let's just do Texas because we're going to be in Austin for a little bit. And we like the market. And that was kind of like basically how we started getting into like where we're going to be focusing, where our mind's at. I love how you explain that because a lot of people will pick their asset class in real estate by how much money they can make. They're like, oh, I'll make way more money in short-term rentals than a long-term rental. So I'm going to go there or you know, whatever the case is, or a lot of people are going into self-storage right now because of the money piece. They see people making a lot of money there. So a lot of people are heading into that asset class, but you didn't mention like, oh, I, I, we picked this because I know I can make the most money here. You aligned it with the type of lifestyle you want. You know that you don't want to be responsible for these people's living situation. And so you pick something that doesn't apply to that. And I think that's a really, really good way to think about it and not what a lot of people, especially newer investors are doing. Yeah. I think one more note, like on the money piece, because like only reason we're doing this stuff is for the money too, right? Which is a factor. The one other piece is the difference between institutional investors between those two asset classes that I was describing is night and day. So like when I'm going, like, let's say we want to buy an apartment building, like we would have to compete against like people with a lot of money. Cause like a lot of people want to buy apartment buildings, right? Like there's very few people who own one apartment building. If you're buying apartment buildings, like you have a lot and you're trying to build out a portfolio compare that to self-storage. I know it's a really hot asset class in the last three or four years, but like 90% or so of the operators in self-storage are mom and pop businesses. And so they actually do only own one. And so you're typically dealing with maybe like a less sophisticated seller. You're not competing against as many people when you're going and trying to buy these properties. So it's just like, it's a different competitive landscape as well. I saw you posted a picture on Twitter It was a before and after picture of some exterior painting that you did on one of the self-storage facilities that you own. Was that your first one in Dallas or was that your second or third one that you did? That was the second one. We bought it over in Midlands. Very, very big oil town in Texas. So I'm learning a lot about West Texas. But uh, yeah, what did you think about the paint? 
It looks awesome. So I, I wanted to ask you, we mentioned this before we started recording the show, but I'm looking at some self-storage stuff and even I was looking at a car wash too. And I think it'll be similar in terms of paint. I was curious, how much did it cost to paint a self-storage facility? That was 20 grand. So it was, I think the total is like, I want to say 21,000 square feet. I forget the linear, like they measure all based on linear square feet, but it, yeah, it cost about 20 grand. And that also included like the big thing with paint is like how they prep it. So like the guys were out there, the whole project took like three and a half weeks. I want to say the first two weeks was just prepping. So it's like pressure washing down the facility, scraping off flakes of things like filling in cracks with caulk and whatnot. And then the paint itself only took like a week. So it was a decent investment, but like it looks so much better compared to what it looked before. If anyone wants to check it out, just go I tweeted it somewhere at C underscore grow. And like, it's literally went from like puke yellow to like not puke, like gray and blue. Like it just looks like decent now. I'll put a link to the photo and your tweet in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking it out. But yeah, I mean, it looks like an entirely new facility, basically. And I've had my personal residence painted a few times and I'd leave in the morning when the painter gets there and I come back and it looks like he has nothing done. And I'm like, what the heck is he doing all day? But what he's doing is prepping. He's prepping the walls. He's doing what they call cutting. They're getting all their lines set in. It looks like he's basically done nothing. And then I'll come back from dinner like two hours later and the, everything's done. And I'm like, you just went, for, it, it's so yeah. exponential. They go from nothing to like everything done so fast. Yeah, exactly. It's all in the prep. I will say as well, the, anyone who's like in the process of renovating any property facility they bought, the biggest learning that I've had in this entire ordeal is any references, like that's gold, but also just try to get as many quotes as humanly possible. So I told you it cost 20 grand. The reason we went with these guys is because the previous property manager really vouched for him uh, and said that he's like a really good guy. And like, I met him a couple of times, had a phone call, really liked him. But as we were getting quotes, so we got nine quotes on this paint job. The quotes ranged from $14,000 to $34,000. So like pretty drastic range. We ended up going with the guys in the middle because they had great references and whatnot. And I, I've also learned the hard way to just not always choose the cheapest thing every time. But yeah, I would definitely say get quotes. Cause like if you get one quote and it's coming back at $34,000, you're like, I guess this is the only thing that we can do. You know? Did you get those quotes before you purchased the property or was this afterwards? Oh man. Okay. This is actually a pretty good story. So we all before we purchased, like the closing got extended by like an extra seven days on this property. And so not only did we get the quotes before we like agreed and told him to get started before we even started closing. And like, we didn't totally even check in on that with like the previous owners. We were just like, nah, man, like go, go ahead and get started, which in hindsight, we should have communicated way better. So the downside is if anyone owns a self-storage facility and they're in the process of like getting all of their units pressure washed, make sure you're using like tape or sealant on the units because on day one of them going around, we got a phone call from the previous owner. Like, Hey, are you guys pressure washing the facility? And we're like, Oh yeah. Like just wanted to get an early start. Like we know we're closing in like, you know, two days. So like wanted to like get a jump on this thing. And he's like, yeah, our biggest customer just called saying that you flooded their unit. And I was like, Oh no. So like the, yeah, the car dealership down the block, he has like five or six units of us. And basically said that like we flooded their unit because it went through one of the back units or whatever. So we took care of that. Like we had a call, like we you're comping them and stuff like that. Like we're taking care of it. But yeah, as a result, it basically led to like, we got started a week earlier, which meant like, that was great. Cause now we can start marketing this facility and filling it up more as like this brand new, like renovated unit and facility. But yeah, when we first owned it, I was like, how did this possibly happen day one? So was that painter not experienced with self-storage? Like, should you have maybe picked somebody that had a little bit more experience? Should they have known that like, hey, this might get into the unit or was it an issue with the property itself? I just think I 
No, I didn't really fault him. You know, he was a cool guy and like understandable. These things happen. He also wasn't like even like aiming at the cracks either. It's just like it's pressure washing. And so like that stuff kind of just like slips through and, and it happens. We fixed it for the rest of them. It's good to know. And like it's definitely something that I'll keep in mind anytime I hire someone in the future. But like it's tough to find like a very niche painter who's like just paint self storage facilities. Like I would imagine most people don't deal with like overhead garage doors that often. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV. Like an adventure-ready RAV4, available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails and with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers and with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work taking forever to close the books, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their book in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. Business owners know the power and simplicity of using one tool for things such as scaling up their business, adopting new business models, and easily viewing real-time analytics on one interface. NetSuite offers the unprecedented ability to make all this possible. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com mi. That's netsuite.com mi to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com mi. All right, back to the show. Did you build in the quote for this painting into your acquisition price and kind of your business plan before you bought it? 
Yeah. We're thinking it's going to be like 50 K CapEx, something like that. So like in my mind, like we bought a second facility, 600,000 estimated about 50 K CapEx. What that basically looks like rough math is what do we spend so far? We spent, it's going to be 20 grand for the, the paint, five grand for all new lights, another five grand for all new cameras. And that includes installation too. So that's 30 grand, about 15,000 for an installation and an automatic gate uh, and about 5,000 for landscaping. And so far, like we're pretty much on the money for all of that so far. Trying to think of anything ran over that we weren't expecting. Not really. Like we didn't even have to replace a bunch of doors or anything. Like the, the structural part was in pretty good shape. They just got a new roof. So once we spend that 50 grand, it should be pretty easy after that. The last big things are we just finished the landscaping. Last big thing is really just the gate now. You mentioned that the previous property manager kind of vouched for the painter. So are you guys self-managing all of these self-storage facilities now? So we have a call center that we use who goes and basically handles all of the inbound tenants. We have an in-house virtual assistant who's based over in the Philippines and she basically coordinates any kind of like boots on the ground operations that need to go and be taken care of. And then we'll have a boots on the ground hire at every property where they'll go by once a week. And they'll basically say, you know, these four units need to be turned over, like verify that these tenants have like locks on their unit. Maybe like somebody missed a payment. Okay. Put an overlock on that unit. So there's kind of like three roles of like customer interaction, facilitation between customer interaction and boots on the ground and the actual boots on the ground person. So right now we're doing pretty much all the management in-house with those three resources. How did you find the boots on the ground person? Oh man, that one's been tough. So the third property, most of the time we try to default to who the previous owner was using. We've gotten kind of burned on that once or twice now at this point. So right now, the third property, we're still using their boots on the ground person. They're great. And we love working with them. Those first two properties, I ended up just going back to Craigslist and just posting Craigslist ads and, and trying to post in like Facebook groups and things like it's tough because... I'm paying somebody for like, I'm not hiring a full-time job. So like, you can't post all around I'm hiring for like, can you be available for five hours a week? And like, in reality, I'm like, I'll pay you every week for five hours a week. In reality, it's going to take like two or three hours a week. So that part's kind of tough because it's like such a flex thing. And so it's been a lot of Craigslist interviews, calls, references, things like that. You should go on like care.com or thumbtack or something like that and look for like stay at home moms. Like I know there's probably a ton that would easily do that and they're probably relatively affordable and they have the flexibility most importantly. Yeah, that's a super good idea. And yeah, cause, it, cause it's not crazy work either. Like I'm not like, you know, if somebody moves out and leaves all of their stuff behind, like whoever I hire isn't the one going to be responsible for that. We'll call like a trash removal person anyway. So like, that's really the thing. All the units that Da Vinci lock on top and like they're off to the races. So yeah, I definitely, that's a good idea. I got to look into that. How many units do you guys have now? Like what are your facilities that look like? How many are at each facility? So right now it's basically, we have 279. The first facility that we bought has 68. The second facility we bought has 117. And the third facility we bought has 94. Would you go now knowing what you know now, would you not go lower than any number? Like if you had to do it again, would you not buy the 68 now that you've done roughly a hundred or would you still go lower than 68? Like what if somebody's listening to this, they want to buy a self-storage facility. Maybe they don't have enough capital to buy something that's 50 or a hundred units, but maybe they get 25 unit little self-storage facility. Is that something that's even worthwhile or should they just wait till they can do something bigger? Definitely not just 25. Yeah. 68 is small, but it's in a decent market with decent rent. So we're able to make it work. I for sure would not go anything lower than that in the future. And I'll be honest, like I don't regret it at all. Cause I think if I bought something bigger, I would have been way more nervous and anxious the whole time. And this was good. Cause like a good value idea, whatever you just have to recognize that the smaller you go, the smaller your margin becomes. 
Because at the end of the day, whether you're running a 300 unit facility, a 500 unit facility, or like a hundred unit facility, they pretty much all have roughly the same cost. Obviously the property taxes are different and there's probably some different insurance costs or whatever, but like they're all still going to go and need some kind of boost on the ground higher. They're all going to need some kind of like CapEx. Like it's mostly the same cost throughout. The difference is, is that with the bigger facilities, you have a lot more revenue coming in to go and offset some of those costs. And so your margin increases. You know, I'd say if it's your first real estate deal and you've never done anything else, like I really think that's 68 unit facility that we bought that was 10,000 square feet. I think that's a great first deal. I'm really happy with it. Now, ideally, we're not doing anything that's less than like 25,000 square feet. It's kind of like the threshold that I'm realizing is like, it's just more worth the squeeze. I found a very small car wash. I'm interested in car washes too. And only mostly the self bay, not the really drive through automated ones. And it's really cheap, but it's in a really small town. And I'm just like, I don't know if the squeeze is worth it. I just don't know if it's going to take all my time and it's going to be actually worth what it gets out of it. And so I'm kind of thinking the same thing with this self storage asset class. How much would it make? So it make like, so it's only going to cost 60 grand total, the acquisition cost. And it would make like, are you seller like are you seller financing are you using debt or like an SBA loan or you could do there are debt options for it you could do an SBA loan or it's only 60,000 so I could just pay cash and it would make okay. it make like yeah. 5 to it right now it makes $4700 profit a year but I think I could get that to 10 grand ish so but then the problem is I don't know if I could sell it it's in such a small town it's like who's going to buy it it's been on the market for like okay. 3 years right now Okay. So my original question was like, I didn't know if it, the whole acquisition cost 60 grand 60, or if like yeah. that was your down payment. No, okay. 60. Yeah. That's not worth it. Like the other thing that nobody talks about with car washes, cause everyone's talking about car washes and laundry mats and all that kind of stuff. Now car washes have 10,000 moving parts. Like things break there every single day of the week. Even like, the self bay ones? So, my dad owned a self bay one. One of my buddy's parents owns a self bay one. Stuff breaks all the time. I understand that like the tunnels you go through, have more moving parts, but like, it's all about like the water hookups and like where that all comes from. And they are always breaking, like you'll have a pump break or whatever. So you're going to have to hire a handyman who lives in that area. Who's able to go in and like know what to fix and when to fix. The other thing that like, that sets the downside, I, I would probably not do it if I were you. It just seems like it's going to be more headache than it is fun. The upside of it would potentially be the fact that there is a lot of people rolling up car washes and moving them over to subscription models, where instead of paying for like $10 for one wash, you get somebody on like 19 dollars a month and they get unlimited washes because the marginal cost is so little. So could be a cool idea. But in this specific example, it's like you can get a return on your money. I just think that you'd probably be like, if you have to spend all like some time of, of your time on that and some time of your time trying to find ways to like buy more RVs or like buy more rental properties, I think you'll get way more enjoyment, fulfillment and money out of the latter. Yeah, I agree. That was the exact kind of thought process that I went through. I was like, I can rent my RV for like two or three weeks and make more money than that car wash will make in the entire year. And my big concern, so I just don't think that the juice is worth the squeeze. But also my biggest concern was, I just don't think I'd be able to sell it. Even if I made it worth on a, we talked about the valuations and cap rates and NOI. Even if I made the NOI significantly higher, kept the cap rate steady and double or tripled the value, nobody's buying it at 60,000 in this town. Definitely nobody's going to buy it for 180,000, you know? So maybe like, and is there additional land to kind of like do stuff on? So I thought about that. I was like, oh, maybe I added like a little self-storage, you know, things like yeah. that. There's not really enough land for that. And the town is really, really, really small. Like 2,000 so people the population? small. All right. This is actually a decent uh, transition as well. The third property that we bought, the town is like 1,800 people. And we're like, oh my God, we're so nervous to do this. Because like, 
that's just not enough people for like a 94 unit facility. But the perk is next to a town that's like significantly larger. And that town that it's next to is also like a very big like lake and boating community. And so they need like space to store like their RVs or their boats or like their jet ski toys and all that kind of stuff. And so like surprisingly, the call volume has been as high as this one because there's no competition in the area either. It's been as high as this one as it has in the Dallas one, despite being a tiny little town. So yeah. All in all, I, uh, but this one as well, like the third deal, we just kind of started driving revenue a little bit on that one. And that one should probably net, let's call it like 60K a year at the bottom of it all. So like, it's still a good deal. And it's like, I'm fine with a few headaches for 60 grand a year. As of right now, you know, maybe we'll go and sell it in a little bit, but like, I still think it'll be worth it for even if you 3X your revenue or your, your net income on that uh, car wash deal, like that's not, you're making 12 grand a year. Like you're not getting, you're not getting excited for it. Yeah. 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 How much did you buy that third facility for? 450. 450 and in the town of like 1800? Yeah. So Nick Huber actually, you know, it is interesting. Like, I don't know, I would be nervous too, but Nick Huber actually buys a lot of his properties. I don't know if he still does today, but when he first started, I know he was buying a lot of his in like really, really small towns in like New York and Pennsylvania. And I don't know if he went as small as 2000. He was on the show a few months back. We didn't talk about the specific size of the cities, I don't think, but I know some of them were really, really small. Yeah. I mean, I was really nervous. I'm surprisingly delighted at how much call volume we've been getting on it so far. And even like, you know, we'll have some people move out whenever we like raise rents or anything like that. But people who are calling back in and want a spot, like they're fine with the new rates and like we're getting good call volume. So I still feel good about it, honestly. So one of the properties you purchased, I believe it was the second one you did the painting on. I noticed in the pictures that basically the way you get to the units doesn't look that great. And this isn't really your guys' fault, but it's just like a dirt road, basically, with some grass. It's kind of patchy, and it just doesn't look good. And I have considered some self-storage facilities that looked just like that. And I'm like, I just, I don't even know where I would start to fix this problem. Like, I'm not paving it, because I've gotten quotes to pave my driveway at my house, and it's ridiculously expensive. So I'm definitely not paving this self-storage facility. But I don't know what the solution is to make it look better. And also, just so the dust isn't, like, blowing up everywhere all over everybody's stuff. So I'm curious, what are you guys doing to remediate that, if anything? All right, I'm going to give you the short answer, then I'm going to give you the long answer. Short answer, nothing. We're keeping it exactly how it is. The long answer is, so you're from New Hampshire. I'm from Jersey, lived up in Boston, partners from Rhode Island, all Northeast boys, right? So like the thing that we realize is like very pampered and like, like for all this kind of stuff to look super nice. And so when we see stuff like that, we're like, doesn't look too great. Like we talk to tenants, we talk to old property managers. We're like, what do you think about this? They're like, oh, well, the ground, like that's no big deal. You know, we're like, yeah, but what about dust? They're like, they're like, but this is West Texas. Like no matter what you do, like you're not getting this dust out of here. And so we're just like, okay, like, so you're saying you don't care. They're like, absolutely not. I drive over that thing with my Ford F-150 and like, it's no problem. And I'm like, all right, I guess I'm just going to leave it. And like, we talked, like, I thought this was going to be a huge project and I'm like getting all these quotes and things like that. And yeah, they're not cheap. That's for sure. You know, you can do some gravel stuff to like fill in some potholes if there's potholes and whatnot. But like for the most part, no one in Texas or any of these states that we've been buying this stuff in seems to care at all. That's hilarious. That's the best answer. Yeah, it is. It's great. And I go through the same thing with my business partner who I invest with from time to time is like, he is really like buy turnkey properties when it comes to residential stuff, because he thinks of it like, well, I wouldn't live there. So we're going to get low quality tenants. I'm like, yeah, but you make at your job over $200,000 a year. You live in a really nice house. You live in a nice very nice city in New Hampshire. Like you are a bit pampered compared to some of these, you know, these different properties that we're looking at across the country. Like you got to remember these are rental units in an apartment complex, not, you know, your single family house that you're living in. 
We had a, a small leak on one of the roofs at the first property, actually. And I called the tenant. I was like, hey, like as soon as we were kind of turning over management, I was, and we patched up that roof or whatever. So it's good now. But I called the tenant. I was like, I was like, hey, how things going? Like, just wanted to check in, make sure everything was good with y'all. And they're just like, oh yeah, things are good. Like a little small leak in the roof, like getting some of my stuff wet. But like, other than that, it's fine. I was like, oh, like, uh, like immediately response. Like, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Like, we'll get that fixed ASAP. Like you guys should not have to be dealing with that. Like I'll waive this month's rent. And they're like, oh, what are you talking about, man? Like, it's no big deal. Like just a little water. And I was like, dude, like kind of our only job here is making sure that water and like stuff like that doesn't get into your unit. Like if we can't do that, like, I don't even know why you're keeping it here. But so I think, yeah, from that Northeast mentality, like you got to think like everything's got to be super nice and look beautiful. Like, dude, it, it doesn't like so a lot of these other like states just don't care as much as you might think, specifically in the places that we're buying. I'll caveat that. Like if you are buying in like, you know, New York or like maybe California or whatever like that, like people care for sure. But like rural Texas, they're pretty cool with whatever. And that just supports your idea and your opinion as to why you chose self-storage. Like it's probably not going <laughs> yeah. to be the yeah, case, like, right? If you buy an apartment building or something like that, usually, I mean, maybe there's a degree to it, but not like that. Dude, I get a phone call from someone who's like, Hey, like there's a leak in my living room. Like I've got like two hours to fix this problem ASAP with this guy. I was like, all right, man, we'll like, just hold tight. Like we'll get somebody out there in like three weeks. He's like, yeah, man, like I said, don't sweat it. And I was like, all right, like if that's what you say, sure. So you had a conversation recently with a 20-year-old who is interested in getting started in business. He told you that he read all the books and now he just needed a mentor to start his business. I hear this exact same thing in the real estate world a lot too. Why are mentors important but not required to invest in real estate or even start a business? In my opinion, one, mentors were probably really important back in the day. And that's also why you see like most skills and most crafts had apprenticeships, right? Because there was no other way to go and learn the skills that you wanted to learn. Specifically now, looking back like 20 years ago, mentors are incredibly valuable because a lot of information is like safeguarded from people and not put out in the public. And so as a result, like if you got an in with somebody who's really good in their field, you had a competitive advantage to be able to go and do that job as good, if not better than your peers, right? Mentors, in my opinion today, are still really valuable in terms of being able to kind of jumpstart your career and like get to where you want to be a little bit quicker. But by no means, in my opinion, are they as necessary as they might've been in the past? Because the fact is, if you're on Twitter, if you're listening to podcasts like this, and you're subscribed to a few of the right email lists, you'll get all of that information for free anyway. And it's always nice to go and have that one-on-one FaceTime of like, hey, here are the specific details of this deal and how it's different from maybe some of these examples that I found online. But like, by no means is it a prerequisite for being able to go and achieve what you want to achieve. So I would honestly just say like having mentors helps and it's always a good gut check, mostly from an emotional standpoint. But when you actually have to deal with like facts and logic and understanding and learning new things, they're not as required as they were in the past. I mean, if somebody wants to get mentored by you specifically on self-storage, just listen to this podcast. I mean, you're not going to get 100% of everything, right? But you just got probably what? I don't know, 70%. There's probably a lot more you can learn, but you just got a 70% free mentorship on how to buy self-storage the way Connor does it. Go read the same book I read. Like that'll tell you everything that I know, right? But building wealth through self-storage. Like it's a great book. Follow the guys I follow on Twitter. All of that information is out there and you don't necessarily have to have this really formal mentorship. If anything, like this is what I told the kid who reached out to me. I was like, like I'm all for reading books. I'm all for watching YouTube videos, of podcasts, mentors, et cetera. A lot of the times, I would say nine times out of 10, it is just a really advanced form of procrastination. If you're finding a mentor and like you're spending all of your time doing that, like just get to work instead. I think it almost reminds me of this Elon Musk quote that I heard where it's something along the lines of like someone asked Elon Musk, like, you know, what would you say to inspire somebody who wants to go and like start a business, but like, you know, hasn't actually gone yet. 
And his quote was basically like, if you need inspiration to start the business, don't start it at all. Cause like this stuff is tough. And so like, if you can't even get excited enough to like do this starting part where it's just like fun, then don't do it. And I think it's, it's the same thing with this example, right? Like if you need to find a mentor before you start a business, don't start it. Cause like, this is, should be the easy part of like kind of getting your hands dirty and like having fun in the beginning. The mentors can help along the way, like get you from A to B, but like you don't need it at all to get started. There are still so many other things I want to chat about. We're going to have to bring you back for a third time. There are very few people who've been on the show two times, even fewer people that have been on three times. So we'll have to get you into that exclusive category of people that have been on on three times, bring you back soon. But Connor, for anybody that's listening today and wants to connect with you, where is the best place to reach you? Yeah. So the best two spots for me are going to be on Twitter or my own podcast on Twitter. It's just at C underscore GRO at C underscore grow and my own podcast. We even had Robert on before. Basically we interview young entrepreneurs all the time because I get super inspired when people my own age are doing cool stuff. Uh, And so I just like having those kind of conversations and that's called the next generation. I will put a link to my episode on Connor's podcast, his podcast in general, Connor's episode that we did previously here on this show, his socials, everything that we've talked about in the show notes below for anybody that's interested in checking them out. Connor, thanks so much again for joining me. Man, it was a pleasure. I always love coming on. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.